So here's the deal. Um, I do have junk going on right now. Um, Friday, no, Thursday night had a little post-nasal drip going on. You're like TMI already, right? Um, anyway, too much information. Um, yeah. Anyway, it got progressively worse, and I ran on adrenaline yesterday. It worked pretty good, uh, and an antibiotic that also helps. Uh, but anyway, just a just a bad sinus infection. Uh, I'll uh, I'll survive. Uh, is would anyone be opposed to me turning the air on to about 50? <laughs> oh, that's never okay, right? All right. Hey, um. The internet introduced me to something this past week that I had never seen or heard of before. Uh, many of you use or have used at different times. We, we find the usefulness of a to-do list, right? Um, sometimes I feel like I can sort of juggle things, and then other times I'm like, going to have to write down a to-do list. Lots of stuff to print off this morning. Fall fun day kind of uh, put me behind on some stuff. You could argue that, well, you should have been working further ahead. Well, I was trying. Um, anyway, lots of stuff to print off. I had to make a, a list of just things I needed to print this morning. So much stuff. But we use to-do lists to, to track things that we need to do yet still and then mark them off as we do them. Well, this week I discovered that apparently there are people walking this earth that use to not do lists. It's not a joke. It's the, which hints the, the no laughing, I guess. But, <laughs> um, but, but for real, there's people, apparently, apparently this is a thing, because I thought, okay, this is a, you know, what not to do kind of article or something. No, no, it's a real thing, uh, because when I read some of these examples of these to not do lists, they're kind of noble. They sound kind of good, okay? Um, so in my very scholarly online research, uh, my sources include Google, and that's it. Um, I quote, a to not do list is a list of things that you have prohibited yourself from doing. These things can be considered goals, objectives, or I like this, intentions of inaction. <laughs> a to not do list can resemble a list of principles or it can simply be a list of habits or mistakes that you would like to avoid. Now, we could probably say that simpler as a, a to-do or a to-not-do list is a list that a person uh, has made of things that they've made it their goal not to do, okay? Pretty simple, right? Well, I found this one particular example of, it was like, I'm not going to read them all, don't worry, 101 things to put on your to-not-do list. And some of them were things like allowing a problem to consume you. Avoiding risk, being fake, not showing feelings, avoiding tough decisions, uh, being late, being too concerned with money, being too concerned with social status, being self-absorbed, uh, conforming to groupthink, being cynical, excessive media consumption, failing to keep in touch with loved ones, being dishonest, uh, being complacent, gossiping. Uh, I mean, once I got to going along reading through these, I thought, this to not do list is not a bad idea at all. It's kind of hard for me to say because I keep wanting to call it a to do list uh, and we could spin all these positively and just make it a to do list. But anyway, um, they're not such a bad thing. Like I said, they're kind of noble sounding. Uh, this morning, I want to bring you a message called a bad example. 
A bad example. Uh, so get your Bible out or grab one from the rack in front of you. I always forget those are there. So let me remind you, if you're ever here without a Bible, uh, you can grab one in front of you. And it is the New American Standard 1995 edition that I always read from. So it will match up with what we're talking about and the exact same translation. Uh, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at something that the Apostle Paul would strongly advise us, I believe, to add to our to not do lists if we if we had one or wanted to make one uh, and the reason being a reason I believe uh, that, that the Apostle Paul would endorse this is because this bad example that we're going to look at has really serious spiritual consequences. We're going to see that as we go along here, okay? Now, before we jump in here at Galatians chapter 2 at verse 11, we need to look at or, or just talk about real quickly what's happening at the beginning of Galatians chapter 2. Uh, at the beginning of Galatians chapter 2, Paul is telling about a time when he and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem and they shared with the other apostles there and the elders of the church at Jerusalem uh, what they had been doing among the Gentiles. Uh, they had been preaching the gospel. They had been converting people to Christ. And they didn't go up there to get their approval. Uh, that's not why they told them this. Uh, they didn't need, Paul did not, the apostle Paul, made an apostle by Christ, of course, did not need their approval. So that's not why he's doing this. He's doing this to relay to them, kind of as an encouragement, but to relay to them the same gospel that's saving the Jews is also saving the Gentiles. It's intended for them. The gospel is for everyone. I'm down here preaching it and it's working. And it was an encouragement. Now, was there a little in the balance like, hey, how, how are these pillars of the church, these guys in Jerusalem, how are they going to uh, take this? Yeah, maybe there was a little, little tension there, but Paul did not need their approval. That is not, uh, that could not be why he was up here doing this. But then as we continue on in Galatians chapter 2, uh, Paul recounts to the Galatians here as he's writing the fact that there were some false brethren who had uh, snuck in or, or sneaked in or something like that among them. Okay, let's just move on. Some false brethren who had uh, weaseled their way in to spy out their liberty. Remember, we've read about this before. To, to look at the freedom they have in Christ and to try to use that to bring them into bondage. To, to kind of say, hey, you guys are a little loosey-goosey, you know, half the guys here, well, all the guys here are circumcised. You're not keeping the dietary restrictions. You're not, you're not keeping the old law. You know, if you're going to be a Gentile and a Christian, you're going to have to do some Jewish things first. Right? They snuck in and they were looking at what these Christians were doing and trying to bring them into bondage under the old law. Okay, That was, uh, that was what was going on. But it's important to notice that Paul also mentions that, hey, again, he says these uh, so-called pillars of the church, James and Cephas and John, that's James, Peter and John, they had no problems with what they were doing. Okay, So these guys snuck in and they wanted to bring them into bondage under the old law. But, but these pillars of the church, these elders, these apostles that were at the church in Jerusalem, they had no problem with what was being uh, preached and what was being done among the Gentiles by Paul and Barnabas. So he recounts that information before he jumps in to uh, verse 11 here in just a second. Okay, uh, this, is, this is good stuff. The fact that Paul, Cephas, and John are okay with what's going on and, and they, they like that the gospel is being preached among the Gentiles. But then 
uh, Paul tells about uh, this episode that happens uh, a little bit later. That's what we're going to read here in just a minute. You can read about this, this event uh, in greater detail in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 15 uh, of uh, Paul and Barnabas going up to Jerusalem to uh, get engaged in this debate on uh, the, the circumcision issue and the gospel that they've been preaching among the Gentiles. That's all laid out in a little greater detail anyway in Acts chapter 15. Uh, but when we start into the second half, uh, of Galatians chapter 2. That's where we come to this bad example. That's where we come to, okay, things have been going okay. Uh, we were doing this. James and Cephas and John were okay with it. But then there was this moment. And this is the bad example that we're going to look at in uh, verse 11, okay? So that's the, that's the setup that Peter has laid out for the Galatians to hear. Now when we get to verse 11 here, uh, it says, but when Cephas, that is Peter, okay? When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Now, we're going to be talking about some of the details that we see there. If anything kind of pops out at you, like, what does he mean there? We're probably going to cover it, okay? But right here on the surface, right off the bat, it's not hard to see that what we have here is a bad example. This is a what not to do kind of thing, right? This is not something we ought to do. This thing that's upsetting Paul, what Peter and these other Jews and even eventually Barnabas gets caught up in, what's upsetting Paul here, what they're doing, it's a bad example. We need to not do this. Now, fortunately for you and me, just because we have a bad example, it doesn't mean like, oh, well, move on because there's nothing here, right? No. A bad example is good for teaching, right? We can learn from that. It, now, the problem is when we don't, right? We ought to take advantage of examples like this and learn from them because it's an opportunity for us rather than having to do the mistake ourselves and face all those consequences ourselves, we can see the real life outcome. We can see the real life uh, circumstances that played into all this and then the consequences and the results without having to actually go through it uh, directly ourselves. So, so let's learn from this, okay? Uh, first of all, we can learn from this bad example that prejudice perverts the gospel. Prejudice perverts the gospel. I want you to look at the beginning of verse 14 again. Paul wrote, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Okay, so just in that little snippet there, Paul says that Peter, and then eventually, obviously, uh, other people were involved in this, that these guys were not being straightforward about the gospel, about the truth of the gospel. So first things first, make sure you notice that uh, Paul draws a connection between their prejudice behavior, Peter's prejudice behavior, and then eventually these other guys, between that prejudice, that withdrawing, all that he was doing, and the gospel. Okay, they weren't just doing this outside of what they were teaching, right? Their actions had an effect on the message they were teaching. Paul makes a connection between the behavior and the truth of the gospel that they were supposed to be preaching, that they were supposed to be living out. Uh, he says there in verse 14, 
This, the, the, he's saying that this disappointing display of prejudice that we see in verses 11 through 13 is a perversion of the gospel, right? He says they're not being straightforward about it. So what we saw happening in verses 11 through 13, that behavior, that progression of, of uh, staying away from the Gentiles and then drawing other people into it, he says in verse 14, that's not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That's a perversion of the, the truth of the gospel. Verse 11 shows us that once these guys were sent uh, by James from Jerusalem to Antioch, Peter stopped uh, having meals with these guys. And, and more than that, he stopped being around them at all. Now, many of you guys in this room know what a big deal it is to share a, a meal with someone in that, that culture, that society. That was a big deal. So we're not going to belabor that. But um, especially a Jew and a Gentile sharing a meal. It was a big deal. But it wasn't supposed to be among Christians where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, right? You're not supposed to be looking at those, uh, those lines that, that men have created anymore. But this is what he's doing. He's, Peter's withdrawing. He's holding himself aloof, the Bible says, staying away not associating with the Gentiles. And then look at the motivation in verse 12. This is, this kind of hits you, right? It's, Peter was, Paul says, fearing the party of the circumcision. Because of Peter's concern about what these certain men uh, that had come from James, from, from Jerusalem there, because of his concern about what those guys would think about him, he starts acting differently. Peter sadly shows this unfair and unmerited discrimination against the Gentiles. And on the other side of that, an unfair and unmerited favoritism toward these Jews. Right? They hadn't done anything to deserve to be you know, put on this pedestal and, and cause anyone who wasn't them to be treated like, you know, dirt. That, that wasn't okay. Right? And Paul then is very clear in verse 14 about this, this prejudice, this hypocrisy being a, a perversion of the gospel. They're not being straightforward. It's, not, it, it's a crooked version. It's not the straight and narrow. It's not the right way to, to, uh, to uh, live this out, much less preach it. Right? Uh, even our English definition of the word perversion is really a, a good description of exactly what's going on here. That's why, why I selected that word because that definition is, is this. The altering of something from its original course, meaning, or state to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. You hear that? I know definitions are wordy. Let me read it one more time. The altering of something from its original course meaning or state to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. Paul says that Peter and these other Jews and even Barnabas eventually were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. This was an altering. It meets the definition. It was an altering of the gospel from its original course to a corruption of what was first intended. This is not the way the gospel was supposed to be, right? Their prejudice was making the gospel say something other than what it really said. To suddenly withdraw and to remain aloof from a particular group of people is not in line with the gospel message is what we're trying to say, right? The message of the gospel includes the fact that Jesus died for not some people, all people, right? Everyone, everywhere. Okay? It doesn't mean everyone's going to uh, apply the power of that blood to their life and live eternally. It's just not the case. But he did die so that everyone would have that opportunity, did he not? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, that whoever believes in him 
would have eternal life, right? Uh, Matthew 28, 19, part of what we call the Great Commission. Jesus speaking again, he says, go therefore make disciples of which nations? All the nations, right? All the nations, baptizing them. So all the nations can be baptized into Christ, can uh, become Christians. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, right? God doesn't want anybody to perish, but for all, right? All to come to repentance. God's concerned about the whole world. The gospel is for the whole world. And in this same letter in Galatians 3, 28, uh, that's where Paul goes on to say that in Christ, there isn't Jew or Gentile, right? We're all one. You're in Christ. You're clothed with Christ. And, and that's that. That's really the, the end of it. So it's worth considering whether we're being prejudiced in our interactions with other Christians and with the lost even and with those that we ought to be sharing the gospel with and so on. According to the example that we've been given here in Galatians chapter 2, um, prejudice, any kind of prejudice like this is a perversion of the gospel. That's important. It's not just, you know, well, somebody might call you on it and be upset with you. God's not okay with this. You're perverting the truth of the gospel. You're not being straightforward about the gospel. Uh, you need to practice what you preach, uh, so to speak, right? If we preach the gospel and we can all say that, that uh, Jesus died for the whole world, God so loved the world, and uh, he's not willing for any to perish, well, then we should practice what we preach and go to everyone with the gospel, not withhold it from, from anyone, right? We need to be straightforward about it. Practice what you preach. I want to challenge myself, and I want you guys to join in on doing the same, to consider this. Just to consider who it is that we might be doing this with. Who, who it is in the church or even outside the church that we might be intentionally withdrawing from. Who am I withholding my fellowship from in the church? Who am I keeping the gospel message from? You know, those who are outside of Christ who need to hear it. Who do I avoid simply because they're not like me? Or who am I uh, maybe very selective about spending my time with for fear of what other people might think if they saw or knew that I spent time with that person, that I was friendly with that person? Because that's not the gospel, acting like that. That's adding prejudice to the gospel, and that's not in the original true gospel, okay? So let's learn this lesson from this bad example. Prejudice perverts the gospel. Uh, lesson number two, we can also learn from this bad example. Openly committed sin must be openly confronted, okay? Uh, it appears that Paul was following Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, where he said, if your brother sins, uh, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother, right? We, we know that progression, and not everybody practices it real well, but, but we all know Matthew chapter 18 and what Jesus said to do, right? Well, in our text here in Galatians 2, verse 11, Paul says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I, this is Paul, opposed him, that's Peter, to his face. Because he stood condemned. So that's, that's eyeball to eyeball. That's what it sounds like. Face to face. Peter came and had this issue. And I opposed him to his face. That's a, that's a, direct, um, a direct contact. A direct confrontation about this. And then when we get to verse 13. It says the rest of the Jews joined him. Who? Joined who? Peter. Right? The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. These men joined, it says, joined Peter in his hypocrisy. Now, to join someone in something means uh, it's necessary that the other person was doing it first and then you joined them later, right? 
I can't join you in something unless you were doing it first. So Peter's doing this first. Paul confronted him about it first. Then, as it always does, this hypocrisy spread. This bad behavior spread. It's contagious, right? And others started joining in on this and being carried away by it. And so Paul does what he must do. As this hypocrisy began to, to work its way through the Jews, Paul has to confront this very open, very visible sin in a very open, uh, visible kind of way. Uh, it's, it's affecting these poor Gentile Christians, and it's got to be addressed, and everybody's got to know about it. Sin that is committed openly must be confronted openly. And this ought to make sense to us. This, is, this shouldn't be foreign. It doesn't mean it's comfortable. It doesn't mean it's what we like to do. But it ought to make sense to us to do it this way. What do we stand to learn or gain from seeing open sin? Where everybody can see it. Everybody knows it's going on. The whole church. What do we stand to learn or gain from seeing this open sin among the congregation but not having any idea how or if it's being addressed? How or if it's being handled, dealt with, right? You see, people have to know. People have to know. People need the lesson. People need that teaching. They need to know that sin is being and will be addressed. And it won't be allowed to spread throughout the congregation, okay? Uh, Paul shows us that he took care of this in verse 14, doesn't he? It says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all. You see, face to face in verse 11, and then in the presence of all when we get to verse 14. After all these people had joined in, right? He, he, he addresses this in the presence of witnesses. Obviously, Peter's there. Uh, probably several of these Jews in their that were acting uh, badly. And uh, probably Barnabas. There were probably some of these Gentile Christians that were around at the time. Uh, again, sin that is committed openly needs to be, um, needs to be confronted openly. It has to be dealt with. When it's visible like this, when everybody sees it, everybody knows what's going on, for the good of the flock, it has to be addressed. And it's not obviously to shame a person for the sake of shaming them. It's certainly not some kind of revenge. It's not a punishment or anything like that. It's for the good of the flock. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, uh, we see this principle being demonstrated. Okay, uh, It's not a direct um, it's not, it's not um, like, okay, this is exactly the same situation, but it's the same kind of principle as far as uh, who are we doing this for? It's for the good of the flock, okay? First Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, Paul is explaining to Timothy how to hold an elder uh, in the church accountable for sin. And he says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So let's take this seriously and let's not jump the gun and get all excited about this, but responsibly, verse 20 says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. And then two really important words for us. So that, why? So that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. You see how even this teaching about an evangelist handling sin among elders in the church, it's demonstrating this principle for us that open sin needs to be dealt openly uh, for the good of the flock. It's for uh, the, the best uh, for the whole church. We're looking for what is best for the whole church, getting rid of this sin. Paul says it needs to be handled in the presence of all. He uses that same phrase, in the presence of all, right? So that, there's a reason, so that 
the rest of the flock will be fearful of sinning so that they won't want to do what they saw others get caught up in doing, okay? The goal is to eliminate sin and to keep it from spreading. Uh, Paul will go on to say in Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? We're familiar with that, that phrase. We, we use it like a, like a um, proverb. <laughs> I wanted to say parable so bad. Proverb, okay? My brain struggling up here, okay? That's just what hap what's happening, though. This leaven is, is going throughout the whole lump. That's what we see going on with Peter, don't we? Um, he set this bad example, and then others started joining in to the point that even Barnabas, Paul says, even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Openly committed sin has to be openly confronted for the protection of the church. So, a couple quick takeaways for us on this point. If you truly care about honoring God and protecting his church. Anybody in the room in that camp? You want to honor God? You want to protect his church? Okay, then if that's the case, don't ignore a gentle rebuke. If a brother or sister comes to you and they do it in the right, the right way with gentleness and love and respect and dignity for you and they show you and, and tell you uh, that they care and they do it with this spirit of, of restoration, like they, they want to help you, they, they want to... Uh, continue down the path with you, continue up that mountain where Christ is the pinnacle and we're all climbing together. If that's where they are, don't ignore that. Uh, don't, don't bristle at that. Don't, don't get defensive about that. Just say, you know, it is really, it's really big of you to, to come to me and, and, and see that. See that and say that. Because I wasn't seeing it or, you know, whatever the case may be. Be honest about it, but, but receive it with the right attitude. Okay, that's one thing. On the flip side, we also need to make sure that we love one another enough to do this. It's not comfortable. It's not enjoyable. It should not be. <laughs> make sure you're doing it with gentleness, respect. Um, honor that person's dignity and make sure that you're not doing it because you're like, you know, ha, I'm not gonna let them get away with it. That's, that's real bad, okay? And that's gonna take you down a dark path spiritually that you don't wanna go. But if you're doing this out of love, and, and you're just trying to help a brother or sister, you're trying to obey what the word says and go to them and help them with this, we need to love each other enough to do that, to help each other keep going in the right direction, not getting off course one way or the other because uh, this open sin, sin that doesn't stop, sin that keeps going, or sin that's out in front of everybody has to be dealt with openly. In Matthew 18, 17, after Jesus said to go to your brother face to face, then if they don't listen, take a couple witnesses. And Jesus goes on to say, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. We don't want to ever get to that point. But the fact is, sometimes it does. And if it does, can you imagine what a horrible thing it would be if you went to someone in love, with respect and all that, and talked to them, and then you took a couple witnesses uh, with you, and you went and talked to them, and they kept doing it, and they were doing it in the sight of everybody, and everybody knew what was going on. How terrible would it be to just let it go and not address it then. It sounds awful to maybe get to the point of having to address it here in a gathering like this. But it would be significantly worse, I think we could all agree, if someone was so obstinate, you know, had that attitude about them that they were going to keep doing it and they, you know, it's my life. And we just let that continue. We can't. So it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's not one of these cool sermon points that everybody goes, wow, Jake, I really like the way you... You talked about that, you know, confronting sin thing. Nobody gets excited about it. It shouldn't. That'd be the wrong attitude. But it's something we need to be willing to do. We've got to be willing to do it, okay? One last very important lesson. 
We can learn from this bad example that hypocrisy will destroy one's witness. Hypocrisy will destroy your witness. Look at uh, what uh, Paul said to Peter in the presence of all. Okay, We saw that he said something in the presence of all. What did he say? He said, it says, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? That's a little, you know, kind of goes in circles, but he's making a good, good point here, okay? In, in this second half of verse 14, Paul is clearly calling Peter's witness to the Gentiles hypocritical. He's calling it hypocrisy. In fact, in verse 13, Paul uses that word to describe it twice, right? He says that the Jews joined in the hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy, right? Hypocrisy. It's definitely hypocrisy. That's Paul's opinion, right? And he's got a good point because, uh, very simply put, Peter wasn't living according to the law of Moses, right? How is it that you're a Jew living like a Gentile? Okay, he's not under the law of Moses. He's in Christ. Okay, he's not under that law, that uh, ministry of death. He's not under the condemnation of it. Not only that, but in another way, you could say he's not under, or he's, he's living like a Gentile because he's not keeping the law. Right? The, no one kept the law perfectly. That was the weakness that Paul talked about in Romans of the law. That's where the law failed, right? Was, it, it wasn't that, the, that God did something that failed. It was that, Paul says in Romans, that um, it was us. It was you and I. It was mankind that didn't keep the law. That's where, it was, where its weakness was found in that, well, the people it was trying to hold accountable were people who weren't doing it. Weren't keeping it. So, so Paul, you know, is telling Peter, how is it that you being a Jew live like the Gentiles? He's not under the law. He's not living under the law. He's in Christ. He, he's not able to keep the law perfectly. All this stuff. Yet here he was through his hypocrisy, through his fear of the party of the circumcision, compelling Gentiles to live like Jews. Right? Now, I don't hear Paul saying that Peter was, you know, verbally, you know, directly teaching these Gentiles that they need to keep this law. You know, your, your guys are going to have to get circumcised. You're going to have to keep these other, you know, old mosaic law, uh, parts of the law, dietary restrictions, all that stuff. But Paul does say that Peter's actions, you know, that's clearly what he's getting at. His prejudice that he's showing here, his perversion of the gospel, not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel it's a calling on the, the Gentiles to live like Jews. Otherwise, why would he show such favoritism to the Jews who are down here saying, y'all need to, need to uh, become Jews before you become Christians, right? He's siding with them by his actions, by what they can see. That's why Paul had to address it openly again, right? What should imagine the damage that this kind of hypocrisy could do? that's what we're trying to hammer away at here. Put yourself in the position of these people who knew Peter up to this point. Gentiles. Who knew Peter. Or, or at least knew his story. Knew what he had been through and what he had done. And his actions and his words and his stance before we get to this point. Acts chapter 15 tells us about that specific time that Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem to talk to some of the apostles and elders there about this debate regarding Gentiles needing to be circumcised before they could become Christians. Okay? Well, Peter's there. He's there participating in that debate. He was in Jerusalem when Paul and Barnabas came up there. So he's in this. And listen to what happens in verses 7 through 11. Acts 15, verse 7 through 11. The scripture says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, 
You know that in, my, in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, this is Peter talking, by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. Just as he did, right? So in exactly the same way. Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. You hear what Peter's laying out here? This is a different guy, isn't it? This is earlier, before what we've been reading about in Galatians. Verse 10, Now therefore, this is still Peter talking, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Strong words. Verse 11, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. Now, do you hear what Peter, not Paul, what Peter has said here? Especially in verse 10. Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Didn't we talk about that earlier? Later, though, after saying this, uh, later when these men are sent uh, from James down to Antioch, Peter withdraws, holds himself aloof from the Gentile Disciples. After saying God made no distinction. And why are you trying to put on them this yoke. The, the old law. Why are you trying to put this yoke on them. That, that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. Why are you doing this? I think it's interesting. How the rebuke that Peter received from Paul. That, that's told to us in Galatians chapter 2 verse, verse 14. It sounds an awful lot like Peter's words here in Acts chapter 15. Turned around and pointed back at himself. Right? In Acts chapter 15, Peter said, why are you placing this yoke on their neck? And then when we get to verse 14 in, in Galatians chapter 2, he says, how is it that you, Paul's telling Peter now, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's kind of just taking his words, turning them around, pointing them back at him, right? But what I want you to, to think about, again, is imagine... The sucker punch. These, these poor Gentiles that are over here just watching it all happen. You know, Peter and Paul, they've got their thing going on and Paul's not happy with it. But imagine the Gentiles who are at the center of all this. Kind of getting tossed back and forth. But Peter's on our side. Now he's kind of doing this weird thing and Paul's upset with him. Imagine the, the sucker punch that this kind of hypocrisy must have felt like to these Gentile Christians. We may struggle with moments of hypocrisy where we do something we're like, oh, I got to fix that. That was not, I shouldn't have done that, right? And we may be tempted to do hypocritical things from time to time, but we have really got to make sure that we, we put some forethought and some focus into protecting our witness. Don't just go day to day and just think like, I will be mostly good. I've read a lot of Bible, heard a lot of sermons. I will be mostly good. The things that I do won't be mostly bad and I'll be okay. We've got to actually think about our witness is something that can be damaged, can even be destroyed. And so we've got to look at it as like almost like a possession, much more valuable than uh, an earthly possession, but we've got to look at it like something that needs protected. And so if we just, you know, it'd be like one of you being like, well, I don't really want to leave my purse in the car because, you know, I've got stuff in there that might melt. I don't really want to carry it inside. I'll just put it on the hood of the car. And you come in here, you act like it's not valuable, right? It's not really that valuable. You don't really want to carry it with you, bother with it. And you don't really want to leave it in the car. So you just leave it out. 
Well, what might happen? What's everybody thinking right now? What might happen to that purse? Somebody might take it. It might be taken from you. Well, how about we look at our, our witness as something that we need to actually think about? Like, well, I may not want to carry it around, you know. Um, I'm doing an awful lot of air pursing up here. I should probably stop that. Why don't I use a manly example? But now I'm so far into it. <laughs> We've got to, even in the moments where it's inconvenient, and we don't want to do this, and we'd rather go and do that, and man, the guys would like me to go and do this, or, you know, but I should stay home and help with it. We've got to respect our, our, our witness to the degree that, that we, we honor it and we protect it. We, we keep it from being damaged or destroyed, and in fact, we try to build it up so that we can have credibility to minister to other people. That's honoring God. That's not just being worried about your reputation. That's being concerned about your witness. So that even if your, your reputation gets damaged, where people say, oh, they're a legalist, or they're a this, or they're a that, you know, they throw these, these things at you. Even if they say those things, the fact is, you're walking the straight and narrow line. You're being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So even if people don't love that, they can come back around, and everyone else does see at, at the same time, that what you're doing is right. You understand? Some people may not like that, okay? People may still hold that against you, but at least it's not wrong that you've done, okay? These Gentiles, I bet they had kind of a rough time moving on after this. Like, okay, that was weird. Peter just like, these guys showed up and they just left us. I mean, there's, there's damage done here, okay? So we need to learn from this bad example. Remember in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, we, we read this for like four weeks straight where uh, uh, Peter said, taught us to abstain from fleshly lusts and to keep our behavior excellent. Why? So that people might see our good works and glorify God, right? Jesus said the same thing uh, long before Peter ever did, right? Matthew chapter 5, we read that, like let your light shine, all that good stuff. Uh, let your light shine in such a way though, right? Not just let it shine, do something. Let it shine in such a way that others might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And Jesus said that. We need to bear in mind that this goes in the opposite direction as well, though. When we don't do this, it, it damages our witness, right? When we live like the world, when we uh, show favoritism like the world, when we're prejudiced like the world, if our uh, behavior is sinful like the world, if we're obviously hypocrites, not doing the occasional hypocritical thing. But I'm talking about when you just live and practice your Christianity as a hypocrite, our witness is going to be ruined, destroyed, buried. It's going to be hard to dig it back up and breathe any life back into it. So church, in your own words, add these lessons from this bad example to your to-not-do lists, okay? Don't be prejudiced and pervert the gospel. Don't openly commit sin and expect it to go unaddressed. And don't think hypocrisy won't destroy your witness because it will.